Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. We've got a huge show today. In just a moment, Congressman Mark Pocan will be with us taking your calls. Congressman Pocan, member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Professor Richard Wolf will be with us. The bond yield has inverted, which freaks out Wall Street. What does this mean? And why should we care? We'll talk about that. But first, Congressman Mark Pocan is on the line with us. Congressman Pocan is a member and former co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He's on the Appropriations, Education, and Labor Committees. Pocan.house.gov is his website. He represents the 2nd District of Wisconsin in the U.S. House. Rep. Mark Pocan is his Twitter handle. Congressman, welcome back. I hope you had a good fourth and all is well for you. I'm, I'm wondering what's on the top of your mind today. Great to be here with everyone. Hope everyone had a good fourth, despite what happened in Highland Park, uh, which we have absolutely got to address. You know, this is a week that um, your members of the House and Senate are home and hopefully getting around the district, parades and other events. And this is a great opportunity to remind everyone that whatever you're caring about that we get done in the next few months, this is a great opportunity to get a hold of your elected officials, whether it be the Senate, whatever they're trying to do still on Build Back Better, whether it be having us address the gun violence, to make sure that we're addressing those issues, to make sure that we're addressing Roe, which we've done in the House. But again, I think you'll hear me say this a lot, things that get caught in the Senate by following their arcane rules. But, you know, there's a lot that uh, we need to get done with a year that's ticking away. And uh, this is a great opportunity for people to get a hold of elected officials. Yeah. Amen. Congressman Pocan, by the way, if you're a, a new listener, you just tuned in. Congressman Pocan will be with us taking your calls. So uh, shall we pick up phone calls? Absolutely. OK, let's go for it. Pam in Chicago. You are on the air with Representative Pocan. Good morning to you both. So getting right to the point, I'm in Chicago. Of course, you know, Highland Park is in relation to Chicago. So my concern is gun legislation. Congressman, we've been told, you know, you have to start somewhere and what we have didn't go far enough. So now that we've got something, how soon are we going to get something else? Because in my eye, it shouldn't take another year or two to put forth additional legislation. So I'm asking how soon can we really get what is needed and then also Keep in mind, Tom, that there was another shooting of 90 bullets, 60 of them riddled a black man's body. Yeah. Thank you, Pam. 
Yeah, no, I hear you, Pam. So let me answer it in two ways. One, the Senate is the obstacle to everything that we've been passing through the House. We've sent multiple measures and, you know, the Senate, because of their 50-50 majority, but also because they've allowed themselves to follow their rather arcane uh, rules, I would argue, around filibuster. Uh, it's been really difficult. So the fact that this came from the Senate, I think that was their saying, this is what we can do right now. Not that that's acceptable, Pam, uh, because I think, you know, how many times do we have to see an AR-15 or a similar weapon used? And then we ignore that that is anything to do with what's happened. But I think the real test, Pam, will be, you know, now that we've passed this, and this is why it's important to have something even small passed, if people see the sky doesn't fall and uh, they don't get a, you know hundreds of calls, people mad at them, in fact, hopefully just the opposite, people who are happy with them, uh, it's more likely people will act and do more because we need to do more. So that's the real test of this first you know, bipartisan bill, even though most Republicans, the vast majority didn't vote for it in the House. This gave us that opportunity to show that the sky won't fall and that we can get more done because we need to get more done. Mike in Baltimore, Maryland, you are on the air with Representative Pocan. Hi, Sean. Representative, I have a two-part question. The first one is concerning the Supreme Court. Since it doesn't look like we're going to rebalance the court, is there any discussions on either term limits or allowing the American people to vote on the folks that's going to be judging us? The oh. second part of my question is, is there any discussion or the rebringing up of a discussion of police reform in the wake of Ohio, where another, yet another young black man, unarmed, has been shot 60 times by police officers for running away. So whenever I get multiple questions, it's always a little trickier. Let me answer the second one, and I might need a refresher on the first one, because the second part of the first question I didn't exactly catch. I'm not sure if this is going to reinvigorate uh, the conversation. However, I can tell you, you know, I had introduced a bill that I really wish we would have looked at that just had standards for police education, for training of police officers, so that no matter where you are in the country, and trust me, it varies greatly on the amount of training and experience a police officer has, at least there's a basic level that we all know as individuals who might get pulled over, uh, as the police themselves, that we know there's a common standard of a base level of education which right now doesn't happen. And I would point to even the Texas shootings, the fact that the officers waited for so long and it took the border patrol to come in because some of them had children in the school to ultimately do something. You know, it just tells me that this is not a good way forward, uh, having no real national standards or for that matter, statewide standards in many places. I just think that's a big part of what we're looking at. Tom, did you catch the first question, both parts? Yeah, Supreme Court reform. Are we yep. going to expand the court? Are we going to impose a judicial code of ethics? that sort of thing. Uh, gotcha. Okay. I missed that second part. I don't know if this Senate will do anything. I am a sponsor of a bill to expand the court. I think the person said they think that's not likely to happen. I think they're right with the current Senate. I'm not sure if term limits address the issue. I think you know they could be helpful in the long term, but I don't know if they would address the immediate issues we have at all. So that can be a part of the debate, but I think you know I'm looking at the immediate problems we have. I do think something around the Judicial Code of Ethics, I mean, watching what's happened with Clarence Thomas and his wife, I mean, clearly seems to did not pass the smell test, I think, for most people who might be watching this, even though most people don't follow the Supreme Court super closely, they should, uh, based on the actions we saw in the last month from them. But again, you know, unless the Senate decides that we no longer wear wigs when we go to work, when most of their rules were created, we've got a real problem because they're not going to be able to pass the things that we have sent 
from the House to address many issues. And, you know, Tom, if you're sensing frustration, it's because I have frustration, right? I want to see the Senate do more. And, um, you know, I think people want us to do more. The president can do a few things by executive order, but it's not as powerful. It's not as permanent. We need a functioning House and Senate. The House has been functioning. And I understand a 50-50 Senate, but part of it is they've got to be a bit more creative on how to get around some arcane rules. Amen. George, in Chicago, you're on the air with Representative Pocan. Thank you, Tom. Good morning, Congressman. Morning. Uh, since the massacre in Highland Park has taught us that the cherished right-wing myth of the only thing that can stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun is false and bankrupt. In fact, he got off over 70 shots despite the fact that there were cops up and down the parade route. They got off none, and they couldn't even stop his escape. We need something more than just good guys with guns. And as a lifelong Democrat, I'm getting real tired of my own party not being tough enough and aggressive enough when it comes to seeking legitimate gun regulations. You know, the Republicans spent years introducing a bill every week to repeal Obamacare and and years on Benghazi. I want to see aggressive Democrats in the House, and and I'm not criticizing you because your heart's in the right place and you do the right thing. But I want to see bills introduced every week that will mandate a thorough and complete background check for anybody who wants a license and for each individual weapon and a 10-day waiting period. And you keep introducing those bills until they finally pass. Enough is enough. George, I hear you. First of all, let me just say this on behalf of the 99 or 98 percent of Democrats who want to do everything you just said. And we have a majority of Democrats in the House who want to pass a ban on assault weapons, right? But the Senate, nothing is going to get through. And it, and I don't want to have to answer that on every question today, Tom, but I may have to because that is the reoccurring problem that we experience when we send things out of the House. So, you know, yes, there are a few Democrats are holding things up. And in some cases, it's the rules the Senate follows that holds things up. But the vast majority of people are there. And a good thing it is, although, wow, the Senate is such a mess. Tyrone in Harlem, New York, you are on the air with Representative Pocan. Thanks for taking my call, Tom. And I wanted to ask the representative, do he think that the White House is doing enough to um, respond to what William Barber is trying to do as far as deal with poor people, the ground up. I think that we'll be able to make serious movement if we are able to touch base with poor people because the poor people are the ones that practically do the work in this country. And, and I don't see the White House participating in what William Barber is doing, and I'm, I'm not hearing good things about what they're not doing as far as pushing the agenda of poor people. And yeah, you know, that's the question I wanted to ask. Thank you, Tyrone. Yeah, no, thank you, Tyrone. Um, so, largely, they they are doing the best. I think that they can, given these weird circumstances we have with the Senate rules. If you look at the Build Back Better agenda, that was completely Joe Biden's agenda. That had a child tax credit that helped lift, uh, I think, a majority of the children out of poverty in this country, if I remember the exact stats on it. Uh, that would have uh, had working families paying no more than 7% of their income on things like child care. Uh, that had a number of poverty measures around everything from um, food assistance to school assistance, uh, lunch at school, et cetera. That was all part of that Build Back Better agenda that unfortunately didn't get done because of the Senate. 
So I can't fault Joe Biden on that. Could he do more executive orders? And again, those are limited how you can do them and they're not permanent. Yes. And in that sense, Tyrone, I wish the White House would do more things um, that they have the power to, but they don't have the power to do everything. That's the real problem when it comes to an executive order. But agenda wise, I mean, the best agenda that we have seen in quite a while um, introduced by a president has been that Build Back Better agenda, which was uh, dealing with many poverty related issues. That was Joe Biden's agenda. Now, the fact that it didn't get through, I don't necessarily blame Joe Biden. I might look at a couple folks in the Senate, uh, as well as every single Republican that didn't support it. But um, I do think there's room to do executive orders, and that's something that you and I both would like to see, Tyrone. David in Columbus, Ohio, you're on the air with Representative Pocan. Hi, Representative. I would like to see the Democrats renounce the uh, high defense spending. I haven't seen one Democratic candidate put that in their literature when they ask me for money. This is the root of all evil, I think, all this uh, defense spending. It's promoting guns. It's promoting imperialism around the world. I just think uh, the Democrats should come out strong on this. What do you think? Yeah, David, so Barbara Lee and I formed last session, I believe it was, the Pentagon Spending Reduction Caucus for this very purpose, right? And we had an amendment to cut 10% of the spending, and we got uh, over 90 members of Congress, the highest we've ever got, to vote for that. The problem right now is obviously Ukraine causes us some issues, even though we voted on most of that funding separately on assistance that went to Ukraine. Um, but I agree, it's the only department we don't audit. You know, largely that money is going to defense contractors, not our military personnel. Uh, we uh, have paid for amphibious uh, vehicles that only sink billions and billions of dollars. Uh, we have on our most recent class of aircraft carrier, uh, when they have the toilets get clogged, it costs $400,000 worth of acids you have to flush down the toilets. So literally you're flushing money down the toilet in order to make the toilets work. There's a lot of reasons why that we should have a much uh, smarter way of investing on national security. COVID was a national security threat, the biggest one we've had in recent years. And yet defense dollars don't go towards that. So in many ways, it's a definitional change because I would argue uh, climate change and pandemics and cyber attacks uh, are all national security threats. And that should be where some of that funding is directed, maybe instead of F-35s. Um, but David, it's tough. It's become a jobs program. And for many people, there's a big jobs footprint in their district and defense industry. And it makes it very hard to have a rational, reasonable discussion on exactly what you and I are talking about. Morris in Long Beach, California. You're on the air with Representative Pocan. Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Uh, Dr. Pocan, you're a doctor to me, my brother, this morning. I believe that the uh, Trump stronghold over the Republican Party is weakening, that it's, it's melting like ice. And I believe that come this November, the Democrats are going to get control of the U.S. government again. Do you believe that? I think when you all get control of the U.S. government, Build Back Better is coming back. I believe that when you guys get control of the U.S. government, the AR-15 is going to be on life support. Am I crazy, or are you in line with my thinking? And thank you, Tom. Good morning to you, too. Thank you, Morris. Morris, I find you you have great wishful thinking, and I hope you're right. I do think you know, the Supreme Court decision on Roe proves to people that what we've been saying for decades, that this is what the Republicans have been working on, when they say something they often mean it, and they were going to go after your freedoms and your rights, and now women are second-class citizens. And hopefully that will spur people to get out. But you're completely right that if we have the majorities and we have a few more seats in the Senate, Build Back Better absolutely has a life, and it is a strong agenda. I mean, you know, uh, Tom, you know I went to forced early and strong supporter of him for president. But Joe Biden's agenda, you know, Bernie and I were both very enthusiastic about it. 
I just was, I think, trying to say, I do think the caller's right. There's a lot of promise we can get done if we get Democrats in. The question is, you know, um, will some of these current issues help get us across that finish line? Amen. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the Tom Hartman Program. In the Tom Hartman Book Club today, our book is Guns Down, How to Defeat the NRA and Build a Safer Future with Fewer Guns by Igor Volsky. This is from the preface, Shooting Guns in the Desert Can Surprise You is the title. We don't teach people how to shoot. We teach them how to think. Mike, the second in command of one of the nation's largest firearms training institutes, tells me over an early dinner. We were at a country club 20 miles north of the gun range where I just spent the last two days firing 200 rounds of ammunition and learning how to safely carry and operate a handgun. A tall, distinguished-looking man who bears a slight resemblance to former President George H.W. Bush, Mike is wearing a yellow polo shirt, neat, clean khakis, and a belt with a holstered handgun and two full magazines. As we sit in front of a beautiful Rocky Mountain backdrop, the tops of which will be covered with snow in a matter of months, I take a big swig of coffee and search for a tactful way to ask Mike the question that's been swirling around my brain since my first day of training at the Firearms Institute. I finally blurted out, I still don't understand why you're lying to your clients. A silence falls over our table. As Mike looks away from me, I look directly at him and wait for him to respond. 48 hours earlier, I had boarded a plane to learn how to shoot a handgun from the best instructors in the business. The opportunity arose through my friend Sam, not his real name, who in the course of my writing this book has become my guide to the world of firearm enthusiasts. Sam invited me to travel to the Southwest and experience a two-day firearm training course with people he described as the best instructors in the world. I will take it with you, and then after, you can interview all the trainers, he said. They all hate the NRA. He had arranged for the range to comp me the two-day course and rental equipment, plus complete access to the other students, instructors, and its leadership team. Sam, a white, boyish, fast-talking ex-Marine and hardcore gun enthusiast, had passionately pitched the idea to me by phone months earlier. You'll love it and really get a taste for what it's all about. Meet some great people and I'll do it with you, he said. Fashioning myself as an open-minded and adventurous person, I jumped at the chance. Surround myself with 600 armed Americans and thousands of rounds of ammunition for two full days of gun shooting in the hot desert? Sign me up. What could possibly go wrong? So there I am, a city slicker who hasn't sat behind the wheel of a car in three or four years, driving my fully insured economy rental car, literally into a desert at sunrise one Friday morning in October. I'm blasting a local hit station with the rindas rolled down, singing at the top of my lungs in an effort to wake myself up enough to handle a handgun. Yes, I'm belting out Sia while doing 70 down a dirt road without another car in sight. 
As I get closer, I turn off the radio, make the right turn, and take a deep, deep breath. Ahead of me, I see a line of cars about 30 deep and a large sign displaying the logo of the Institute. Next to it is a larger placard. Warning, unsafe to enter without authorization. Live fire training area. Risk of severe bodily injury or death. I've arrived. Before I know it, I'm on a 500-acre compound in the middle of the mountains. I drive up to the parking lot, suddenly overcome by the vastness of this place, and pull into a spot. Sam meets me and tells me that more than 600 people will be taking 20 different classes at the Institute that day, most of which involve handguns and rifles. After lunch, classes on automatic machine guns will be available. My eyes grow wide at the idea of even being near a machine gun. I smile at him and look around to see people carrying coolers and equipment, behaving as if they're at an amusement park or some kind of sporting event. This is my first feeling of panic, of being found out as an interloper, or worse, a spy in a foreign world. We move into a line for equipment rentals, and Sam points out the people in the best tactical outfits and reviews their looks. Finally, something I can get into. Sam himself is decked out in a slick black shirt, which accentuates his military build, and inverted cargo pants with pockets that expand into the leg, an outfit suited for concealed carry, he tells me. Everyone around us is wearing a variation of this military-style clothing, and I realize that these are specialty clothes designed for recreational firearms shooting. Some even have custom hats with their names embroidered on the front and back as if they're actually serving in the military. These folks are really hardcore. It really has become a lifestyle, Sam says to me. I glance down at my jeans and bright red sneakers and realize I've made a horrible mistake. As if reading my mind, he says, you're just fine, and starts to examine the kit the young attendant has just handed me, making sure I have everything I need. We move forward toward a long row of tables where staffers are inspecting all weapons and ammunition. It's his first time here, Sam says. Magazines, 200 rounds of ammunition, safety goggles, electronic gear protection, holsters, you got it all. The inspector says, mostly for my benefit. I smile and make a mental note that those things that hold the bullets are called magazines, not clips. And, oh, by the way, it's rounds, not bullets. Okay, lift your hands up, the attendant says. Before I know it, he and Sam are putting a belt around my waist and sliding the ammunition holder and gun holster onto it. The inspector confidently drops a Glock 17 into the gun holster on my right side, the firing side, and I'm carrying a firearm for the very first time in my life. As Sam and I start to walk away, I try to decide if I feel any different. Suddenly, the inspector calls out after us. Wait, are you the Sam, he asks. Sam turns around and smiles. I've seen your videos and stuff, the inspector enthusiastically tells him, becoming a starstruck fangirl right before our eyes. The book is Guns Down by Igor Volsky. Patrick in Edmond, Oklahoma, you are on the air with Representative Pocan. Oh, wow. Thank you, Tom. Congressman Pocan, thanks for taking my call. My, my, my question for you as, as, as part of the congressional leadership is just generally how do topics get decided? What is the priority that the House is going to tackle? We just had a, a historic ruling that repealed Roe v. Wade. In my opinion, there should be an equally historic uh, judiciary um, uh, committee put together to pursue, for example, the justices who misrepresented themselves during their confirmation. Um, I, I, get, I, am, I share some of the sentiment of the previous callers. I, I get frustrated when I don't feel Congress is wielding all of this power that it has now to address, to, to represent me and represent people that feel like me. Um, what, what are your comments, sir? Thanks for taking my call. 
Yeah, no, absolutely, Patrick. It's fair. Um, first of all, on the Senate side, I mean, kind of this reoccurring thing, I guess I'll keep saying, which is, you know, they have a 50-50 Senate and they follow rules that were invented when you wore a wig to go to work in the Senate um, around the filibuster. And even though it's been changed over the years, they don't want to change it anymore at a time they need to or else they can't pass legislation. So I can't justify how the Senate uh, works. I can tell you on the House Democratic side, um, many of us still have concerns because the decisions are lar largely made from the top leadership rather than it should be the members in the committee process. And I know that, you know, there's lots of talk that, you know, at some point soon we'll probably have a leadership change given our top three leaders are in their uh, early to mid 80s. Uh, and that uh, is something I think many of us are talking about to the various people who want to run for these offices about how important it is that, um, you know, we have uh, that ability to follow the committee process like it used to be followed, not up to a handful of people, but up to every single member, because I think you'd get stronger and better buy-in and better legislation out of that process. Steve in Ocala, Florida, you're on the air with Representative Pocan. Greetings. Great to talk to, talk to you both. Um, regarding Social Security debt benefit, uh, $255 uh, for a surviving spouse or child. My brother recently passed, and I was his rep payee for Social Security and took care of his finances for 15 years, and Social Security notified me that I'm not available for his death benefit. So my question is, $255 is woefully inadequate. Cremation and burial uh, pushed up towards $6,000. We, we need to update that benefit, and we need to make it available to surviving next of kin if there are no spouse or children uh, available. Thank you for taking my call. Yeah, Stephen, I, I hear you. And I think, you know, one of the things that we would like to do much broader than just this part of Social Security is reform Social Security in a way that, you know, maybe has the increase tied to what the expenses that seniors have, uh, find a way to lift the cap on some of the wealthiest that don't pay another dime past about $146,000 that they're taxed on into Social Security. It makes it a regressive tax. Uh, we want Social Security to be there in the long run. We want to fix some of these uh, levels that need to be fixed. And it's going to take, my guess is, comprehensive legislation, which there is a bill introduced by John Larson out of Connecticut to do just that. In fact, I believe it has, if not a majority of the Democrats, right now, thanks. Yeah. Pocan.house.gov, and you can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. Representative Mark Pocan taking your call. Ziggy in Oneonta, New York. You are on the air with Representative Pocan. Yes, Congressman, I have a messaging suggestion for our politicians. Last night, uh, Dick Durbin was on with Chris Hayes, and he made a very passionate speech. And then he ended it with, we need to vote. And no, we don't need to vote. We need to vote Democratic. And whenever our politicians are on TV and talking, whenever they use the word vote, they need to immediately say Democratic. we got to tell people we want them to vote for us. My suggestion. No, I hear you, Ziggy. You're right. Um, I think, you know, we know in general people agree with Democrats. So if more people vote, more people will vote Democratic. I think that's the assumption that people are making. But, you know, um, it's kind of the old adage. you got to ask for people's vote, right? Because that's what people want to hear. And uh, I think you make a good point. Steve in Fort Atkinson, Wisconsin. You're on the air with Representative Pocan. Thank you, gentlemen. 
can anything be done about the virtual onslaught of commercials for Medicare Advantage? No one's telling the other side other than if I didn't listen to the Tom Hartman show, I wouldn't know about it. And I wouldn't know about the discrepancy. I mean, uh, a spot on 60 Minutes or something, if if uh, Social Security can't run ads, some, something has to get out there. Some, the word has to get out. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, part of it would be just have a Social Security that actually functions completely and a Medicare that functions completely right, so you didn't have to have uh, this this whole addressed in, in the way that it currently is being addressed. Um, you know, I'm glad that Tom talks about this, and he's got a, a book where he talks about this very strongly. Uh, Lloyd Doggett in the House from Texas has a bill to try to address this. Um, but right now, under the current system, this is the the prevail. This is a, a large way that you see many people um, thinking that they're they're benefiting themselves with. I think some serious questions around the programming. Um, I, I, I don't see this probably as prominent a discussion as fixing Social Security and Medicare in general, but it should be. Or Paul in Woodenville, Washington. You're on the air with Representative Pocan. Thanks, Tom. Uh, Congressman, I don't hear any Democrats talking about the number one most important legislative goal with respect to guns that we should have, and that is repealing the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act passed by the Republicans and George W. Bush in 2005, which gives the gun industry carte blanche exemption of strict product liability, which every other product in this sold in this country is subject to. And if we just did that, a lot of things would. First of all, we wouldn't have to have an assault weapons ban to be accused of taking the uh, their people's guns away. The gun industry would do it if they had to internalize the cost of these weapons, they probably would stop making them, number one. Secondly, they'd probably buy a lot of them back off the street so they'd stop getting sued. And third, they would the gun industry themselves would be the biggest advocate of all the other forms of uh, reforms that we're advocating because those would be their defenses and liability claims. Fourth, if we have a two-year-old who's lost his parents in the shooting on Monday uh, and we have a $2 million GoFundMe thing, that gun industry should paying, be paying that money, not us. We are the victims. And lastly, the Supreme Court would have nothing, not a damn thing to say about a law that was passed by Congress that Congress decided to repeal. We don't have the votes now, but we can fight. We should be using it as a fighting point and saying we're going to do this because it's the number one damn thing. The gun industry has gotten away with it. And secondly, they came across with two a Supreme Court rulings right after that uh, in 2008, and uh, Heller and, and McDonald in 2010. And this all happened after the expiration of the assault weapons ban. We've been had. Yeah, Paul, so first of all, there is a bill introduced in the House and the Senate to do just what you've talked about, um, because we looked into it. We wanted to do something, and uh, we're like, oh, there's already a bill existing out there. We've been a sponsor of that. So it's not that it's not being talked about. It's not that it's part of the mix. I think, you know, there could be some issues in a in a four-seat House that we may not have enough votes on that particular one, and certainly on the Senate. Um, and I can't say that for sure. I'm just saying I'm trying to guess part of why that may not be moving forward. Although, again, we had to have the Senate move the bill. They move forward because they're the, the bigger obstacle when we do this. Um, although I wouldn't dismiss the, the assault weapon ban uh, quite as easily. I think, to me, that is the single most important uh, bill, and David Cicilline has that right now. Um, that would have a very big uh, direct impact right now and has already been law. 
so we know it works and there'd be less resistance to it because you can have great ideas, but if they can't pass Congress, then they're great ideas. But this is something already that, that had worked. And to me, I think that should be the, the single biggest focus for many of us who want to address this issue. Uh, also, if I can, Tom, I've been actually texting with Brad Schneider, the person who represents uh, Highland Park, where this happened during the program. Didn't mean to be rude, mm -hmm. but he was uh, replying because supposedly uh, there was uh, something that came out. He tried to send it to me and the tweet was deleted that that person who uh, did the shooting in, in Highland Park was going to then drive to Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, next, they had talked yeah. about doing that. Yeah, and, it's in uh, the paper now. That, so... Yeah, I just uh, that's my district. Yeah, I just saw that on Drudge. It's insane. It's insane. Yeah. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Gail in Fresno, California. You're on the air with Representative Pocan. Well, hi, Representative Pocan. Thank you for taking my call. The question that I had was, I'm wondering why the Progressive Caucus is not putting more pressure on President Biden to do two things, pass an executive order starting with student loan relief. That's number one. And number two is he could today, today, he could declare a national gun emergency. And I also just wanted to quickly add that, you know, when the Progressive Caucus signed off on infrastructure bill without, a, without any asking for anything or demanding anything in return, you know, that was really an opportunity that was lost there. And if things don't change and if promises aren't kept and if we don't start seeing some action and executive orders, because we've got the mansion and cinema problem, of course, but I'm afraid it's going to be a bloodbath this November. And if the Republicans get back in charge, they will try to impeach President Biden. Does President Biden not understand that? And I'll take that. I'll take the answer off the air. Thank you. Sure. Thank you, Gail. So in general, I agree with you. One uh, area, though, I have to admit it's a bit of a, a thorn in my side is when people don't know what a group has done, don't assume they haven't done anything. Right. I think that's a fair assumption that you should always have, because we have uh, put those uh, ideas forward to the White House for executive orders. And we've sat with the president in the White House uh, about executive orders. And we did a letter early on suggesting, I want to say something like 58, I might be wrong on the number, executive orders. So, But we don't do executive orders, the White House does, right? So ultimately, um, where I completely agree with you is the White House should be far more aggressive on executive orders to show that Democrats are getting things done. 
in the light of the problems we have in the Senate, right? The 50-50 majority, a couple senators that aren't always with us, and the problem of, of the filibuster. But I, I just do want to defend my colleagues in the Progressive Caucus. We've done many of the things you've asked, so don't automatically make an assumption it didn't happen. And the president doesn't always automatically do what the Progressive Caucus, or for that matter, the Hispanic Caucus or others ask. Um, but I am a strong proponent for the president to do more executive orders now, um, because I think we have to show that Democrats um, are doing things and can still get things done, knowing the limitations of what he can do within executive orders. Kevin, in uh, is that Chandler or Cander or is Arizona? Chandler, Arizona. Chandler, thank you. You're on the air. Yeah, Tom, thank you, uh, and uh, Representative Pocan. Uh, I called on this uh, topic uh, a couple months back uh, regarding uh, Medicare DCEs, now ACO reach. Uh, in that time span, uh, I, we received a letter that we are now enrolled in it involuntarily. Uh, it doesn't appear that there is like you say, we can't can't make the judgment there isn't anything going on. But I just wondered, how does that, how's that looking to eliminate that? Thank you. Yeah, Kevin, uh, thank you. I, I could give you a very long answer, and I won't. So I'll try to give you the short version. We've had a, a call directly with the person who administers this program. We've talked to Javier Becerra about this as well. They got rid of two of the three pilot programs that were started under Trump. I don't know why they haven't got rid of the third. They're doing changes to it that would make it more accountable. But as far as I'm concerned, it still looks like a privatization scheme. And um, I would stop all of these until they figure out exactly what they do want to construct that doesn't look like a privatization scheme and then come back and put it in, not leaving one program and keep changing it until you might have a Frankenstein in the end. And that's my fear is that that might be where they're going. So two of the three are gone. That's the good news. This last one we're still working on. And, um, you know, I, I, I think they're wrong. And we've had multiple conversations with them towards that end. There's a lot of money in this thing. My own doctor, I, I had to uh, I had a doctor's visit a couple of weeks ago and I had to fill out the form online, you know, before you show up. And after I'm all done filling it out, it, it throws a sales pitch for Medicare Advantage at me and says, would you like us to transfer you to this wonderful new program? Yeah. I mean, everybody in America is getting these things from their doctors because the doctors are getting spiffed by the insurance companies. It's insane. Daniel, in Columbia, South Carolina, you're on the air with Representative Pocan. Uh, yes, sir. I wanted to slightly and respectfully disagree with you on uh, the the this instance of a need for training in law enforcement. Um, I am a new law enforcement officer in South Carolina, and I, I think we, we're we not often uh, uh, labeled as liberal, but I am in a, a good progressive department, and there's two cases I wanted to drop at you, and that is one, Tennessee versus Garner. It's called the fleeing felon uh, case, which states that if there is no uh, threat to our lives or a threat to the public, we cannot shoot a felon simply because he's fleeing. And then there's another one, Graham v. Connor with the for Graham, Graham versus Connor with the force continuum that states, uh, you know, if a person is just defensively resisting, we have to use appropriate force, which does not mean the gun. My question is, if that's being taught in South Carolina, one, is it being taught federally? all across the nation, or two, why is that not being prosecuted? Sure. Well, first of all, I don't think, I think we're actually in agreement, Daniel, because that's the whole point of, of my legislation is to make sure it is taught nationally. And right now there are no standards that are taught nationally to police. 
and that is part of the problem. Um, and I think, you know, I was referring to even things like in, in uh, Texas, where it took literally people who had kids in the school to come up and try to do something to save their kids because the police inaction there and the training there didn't uh, get them to where they needed to be to protect uh, a whole lot of children. But to the second point, yes, I mean, you know, that should be the standard, right? And and we know that. And I think you know, when you look at Ohio, and I thought it was 60-some bullets that riddled the body of the 90 that were shot. Uh, you know, clearly, uh, I, I think there's a, a strong debate we could have whether or not they reacted correctly. I just think, uh, and again, I think we are in agreement, Daniel, is that if the level of training that you're getting was the level of training everywhere and people knew about that, that would be better than the fact there are no standards for that training nationwide. That is part of the problem. Mark, in Rosendale, New York, you're on the air with Representative Pocan. Well, this is sort of perfect timing because I want to address a similar issue. We have a young man, black man, traffic stop, 60 bullets. We have a white man, young white man who killed seven people. He's arrested. I don't think this is a training problem. It's a racism problem. What can we do about racism in our police forces? Yeah, Mark, first of all, I mean, your comparison is a bad one, but your point is a good one, <laughs> because it's not like the shooter was still there and they didn't shoot the person. The person was gone and they found them later. So I just I just want to put that out there because I like comparisons to actually make more sense. And I don't think yours delivered what you tried to accomplish. However, having said that, um, I, I do think there is plenty of racism, and that's part of why, again, a uniform set of training would help take care of that. I'm not saying that's the, the silver bullet. I absolutely think there's racism, and I've seen plenty of these videos, as you have, where clearly racism is at the core of this. But your comparison doesn't answer that because it's not like the, the white shooter was there and they didn't arrest and they didn't do anything. They found the person. We'll be right back with more of your calls for Congressman Pocan in just a moment. Pocan.house.gov is his website. You can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. We'll be right back with more of your calls for Congressman Pocan. Bill in Sierra Blanca, Texas. You're on the air with Representative Pocan. Thanks, Tom. Yes, Representative Pocan, before I ask my, ask my question, I want to quickly say that I just saw a press conference before Tom's show that in Madison, in, uh, excuse me, in Highland Park, they, after they interviewed the uh, suspect of the mass shooting, he said he did travel and drive to Madison in another city and decided not to shoot up a 4th of July celebration there because he hadn't planned it. Yeah, and I, I thank you for that, Bill. In fact, I just saw that myself. And like I said, Brad Schneider, who represents Highland Park, is, is the first person who mentioned this a little while ago that he saw this. Um, and he's dealing with, obviously, the consequences for his constituents. Look, we've got to address, uh, to me, the automatic weapon issue in a much more significant way, as well as many other gun measures, um, because this is going to keep happening. It may not even be a week or two before it happens again. And we'll have another moment of silence on the floor of Congress, and other than the bill we did pass in the House recently that addresses a few issues, not enough uh, to address a, a real moment of action. And, you know, we need to be able to do more on this, and I'm hoping that this first bill will give people confidence that they can do more. Tom in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, you're on the air with Representative Pocan. Oh, yes, sir. With respect, there is actually a national standard for law enforcement officers, the police officer standards and training. It's a post 
certification to become a police officer has requirements to maintain your, your certification every year. And it's vetted through the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in, in uh, Glencoe, Georgia. Is it mandatory, uh, Tom? Yes. You have to be a post-certified police officer to, in order to be a police officer. Congressman? Yeah. Yeah, I, what, Tom, we could look into this and get back to you, but I can trust, trust me, we have looked into it, and there is not a uniform set training across the country for law enforcement, uh, nor the qualifications to even be qualified to be a law enforcement officer, and that is a part of the problem. Congressman, we just have 30 seconds here. Uh, thoughts on the coming week? Uh, you know, next week we'll be back in session, both the House and the Senate. Um, generally, July is when we take up all the appropriation bills in the House. The Senate generally doesn't do what they're supposed to and do the same thing. Um, but, you know, that is an important time because that budget document is one of those must-pass bills that happens. And, um, you know, where a lot of other legislation doesn't make it through, this ultimately will. So it's an important time to be in contact with your elected officials. Also, the National Defense Authorization. So if people uh, like the caller earlier today are concerned about that, reach out to your elected officials and say we spend too much on the Pentagon. There you go. Congressman Mark Pocan, Middays with Mark. Thank you, Congressman. It's always great Absolutely. having you on. Thanks so much, Tom. My pleasure. We will be back. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about. Professor Richard Wolf will be here with us in just a moment. Uh, the bond yield or the bond curve has inverted. What the heck does that mean? Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. On the line with us is Professor Richard Wolf, the economist, co-founder of democracyatwork.info, his author of numerous books, his latest, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Uh, his Twitter handle is Prof Wolf. Uh, Professor Wolf, I, I saw a, an article this morning, uh, actually several of them, about how the bond yield curve has inverted. And uh, Wall Street seems to be freaking out about this. What does this mean? What is it? And, and what, what does it mean? And how might it affect all of us? Okay. Um, it's one of those statistics that the specialists got excited about uh, years ago and began to believe, some more than others, that if you follow this particular statistic, it would almost like a magic wand tell you in advance uh, how the economy was doing, whether a recession or an inflation or something else was coming down the pike. Uh, people shouldn't get too wrapped up in this. There's a long history of one or another statistic being looked at this way. But this one has lasted quite a while, and here it is surfacing again. Let me explain. When the uh, government of the United States, the Treasury, borrows money, 
It writes basically an IOU. These are called treasury securities, treasury bills, treasury bonds. They're different names for how long the loan lasts. Uh, two of the most famous are two-year bonds. That's when the government borrows and pays you back two years after the moment it borrows. And the other one is the 10-year bond. There are others, but those two, the two and the 10, get a lot of attention in part because other uh, forces in our economy guide themselves by how they're doing. Normally, normally, the interest rate on a two-year bond is lower than the interest rate on a 10-year bond. The basic idea being, if you're gonna tie up your money, uh, you're gonna want a higher interest rate over that period than if you're tying your money up only for a shorter time. So if you lend it for two years, you would expect a lower interest rate normally than what you would get if you're willing to commit money for 10 years. An inverted yield curve simply means that the normal arrangement is reversed. So instead of the two-year bond being lower in interest than the longer one, it's the reverse. The short one is higher. Why is that important? Probably it's most important symbolically because people have become attached to this particular relationship. But if you want to give it some economics, here's the idea. When interest rates over the long period are in fact lower even than the ones in the short, basically what you're doing is you're telling banks in this country your normal way of making a nice pile of money, which is for banks borrowing at a low interest rate short term and then relending that money out at a higher rate longer term because they're banks and they're presumably able to maneuver and get through it, this sort of money making for banks is now gone. There's nothing in it for a bank to borrow at a higher rate for two years and then lend it at a lower rate for 10. That's a losing proposition. So it is argued banks are going to be less willing to lend money over long term. And that means companies looking to expand are going to have a hard time getting a loan because these relationships are the way they are. Again, I would urge everyone, don't get too wrapped up in the symbolism here. What you should understand is that when interest rates as low as this, 2%, 2.5%, below 3%, it is a comment of the whole financial system that this economy doesn't look good. Nobody who's a millionaire or a billionaire or a big corporation wants to tie up their money by lending it to the government for two or three percent. Why? Because remember, we're living in an economy that inflation is driving up every price by eight or nine percent per year. If you lend at two and your prices are going up at eight, you're falling backwards six or seven percent per year. And that means you would only do that if investing in real jobs and real production was such an awful prospect that you'd rather lose six percent than risk investing in the American economy. That's the important thing to understand. So what's the relationship between this and recessions? Because the, the, the hysterical headlines are always bond yield uh, curve inverts, recession coming. Yes, the, the argument has always been 
that what's going on here is that the, the short-term interest rates are staying more or less where they were, the long ones are coming down. What that means is money that might have been going into producing goods and services, hiring people to produce those goods and services, that money isn't going into those activities. Instead, it is being lent to the government. Another way to say this, businessmen and women the rich in our country, are so down on the future of U.S. capitalism at this moment that they rather lend money to the government at 2 to 3% for as much as 10 years than to risk their money investing in the real economy we all depend on. That is why this is looked at as a sign of very hard times coming down the pike. How accurate is it as an indicator of that? You know, it's the, the same answer I give to every other one of these things. Sometimes it's on target and sometimes it isn't. I don't mean to be facetious, but you know, as they said in my school, once a day, the broken clock is exactly on, twice a day, excuse me, the broken clock is uh, exactly on time. Yeah, sometimes it works this way, but there have been other times when we've inverted the curves, we've seen the situation we have now, and because of other reasons, we didn't get a recession. The answer is recessions come out of an accumulation of economic problems. We certainly have those. Most people that I know, in and out of the banking world, in and out of Washington, in and out of academia, are convinced we're going to have a recession. Really, the only debates now, will it be this year or next? Will it last a long time or a short time? And how deep will it cut? And there's the real question, because we have a working class in this country that just went through COVID, just went through an economic crash, now is going through an inflation, and we are actually telling them we're going to put them through a recession. If you're wondering why this country is falling apart, splitting into red and blue and all the rest of it, you are putting your mass of working people under levels of strain that make societies crack. Yeah, I totally get it. Professor Richard Wolf, it's uh, always so great to have you with us. And thank you so much for filling us in on this. My pleasure. Thank you, Tom. Great speaking with you. You can find his work, his uh, website at democracyatwork.info, and you can tweet him at Prof Wolf, B-R-O-F-W-O-L-F-F. -F. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from The Undercommons, Fugitive Planning and Black Study by Stefano Harney and Fred Moten. This is from the introduction. It starts with love, exchange, fellowship. It ends as it begins, in motion, in between various modes of being and belonging, and on the way to new economies of giving, taking, being with, and for. And it ends with a ride in a Buick Skylark on a way to another place altogether. Surprising, perhaps, after we have engaged dispossession, debt, dislocation, and violence, but not surprising when you have understood that the projects of fugitive planning and black study are mostly about reaching out to find connection. They are about making common cause with the brokenness of being, a brokenness, I would venture to say, that is also blackness, that remains blackness, and will, despite all, remain broken because this book is not a prescription for repair. If we do not seek to fix what has been broken, then what? How do we resolve to live with brokenness, with being broke, which is also what Moten and Harney called debt, 
Well, given that debt is sometimes a history of giving, at other times a history of taking, at all times a history of capitalism, and given that debt also signifies a promise of ownership but never delivers on that promise, we have to understand that debt is something that cannot be paid off. Debt, as Harney puts it, presumes a kind of individualized realization to a naturalized economy that is predicated upon exploitation. Can we have, he asks, another sense of what is owed that does not presume a nexus of activities like recognition and acknowledgement, payment and gratitude? Can debt become a principle of elaboration? Moten links economic debt to the brokenness of being in the interview with Stefan Shukatis. He acknowledges that some debts should be paid and that much is owed, especially to black people, by white people. And yet, he says, I also know that what it is that is supposed to be repaired is irreparable. It can't be repaired. The only thing we can do is tear this stuff down completely and build something new, end of quote. The undercommons do not come to pay their debts to repair what has been broken, to fix what has been undone. If you want to know what the undercommons wants, what Moten and Harney want, what black people, indigenous people, queers and poor people want, what we, the we who cohabit in the space of the undercommons want, it is this. We cannot be satisfied with the recognition and acknowledgement generated by the very system that denies, A, that anything was ever broken, and B, that we deserve to be the broken part. So we refuse to ask for recognition. And instead, we want to take apart, dismantle, tear down that structure that right now limits our ability to find each other, to see beyond it, and to access the places that we know live outside its walls. We cannot say what new structures will replace the ones we live with yet, because once we have torn stuff down, we will inevitably see more and, and see differently and feel a new sense of wanting and being and becoming. What we want after the break will be different from what we think we want before the break, and both are necessarily different from the desires that issue from being in the dark. Let's come at this by another path. In the melancholic and visionary 2009 film version of Maurice Sendak's Where the Wild Things Are, 1963, Max, the small seeker who leaves his room, his home, his family to find the world beyond, finds a world of lost and lonely beasts, and they promptly make him their king. Max is the first king the wild things have had, whom they did not eat, and who did not, in turn, try to eat them. And the beasts are the first grown things that Max has met who want his opinion, his judgment, and his rule. Max's power is that he is small while they are big. He promises the beasts that he has no plans to eat them, and this is more than anyone has ever promised them. He promises them that he will find ways through and around and will slip through the cracks and recrack the cracks if they fill up. He promises to keep sadness at bay and to make the world with the wild creatures that roared their terrible roars and gnashed their terrible teeth and rolled their terrible eyes and showed their terrible claws that Max fails to make the wild things happy or to save them or to make the world with them is less important than the fact that he found them and he recognized in them the end of something and potentially the path to an alternative to his world. The wild things were not the utopian creatures of fairy tales. They were the rejected and lost subjects of the world Max had left behind. And because he shuttles between the Oedipal land where his mother rules and the ruined world of the wild, he knows the parameters of the real. He sees what is included and what is left out, and he is now able to set sail for another place, a place that is neither the home he left nor the home to which he wants to return. Moten and Harney want a gesture to another place, a wild place that is not simply the leftover space that limbs real and regulated zones of polite society. 
Rather, it is a wild place that continuously produces its own unregulated wilderness. The zone we enter through Moton and Harney is ongoing and exists in the present, and as Harney puts it, some kind of demand is already being enacted, fulfilled in the call itself. While describing the riots of London in 2011, Harney suggests that the riots and insurrections do not separate out the request, the demand, and the call. Rather, they enact the one in the other. The book is The Undercommons, Fugitive Planning and Black Study. Carol in Valencia, California. Hey, Carol, what's up? Hey, hey, Tom. Uh, yes, I know, I know we're running out of time. Um, first of all, uh, I want to say this. I, I, for, I was a therapist, and one of my colleagues used to say to her people, the game is over and we lost, and you lost, meaning your family of origin, you lost. You lost big time, and you have to grieve it and work through it and move forward because you're stuck. Now, I think the game is over and we have lost. They have totally I disagree. Captured. I know you do. We've talked about this before. But, Tom, here's what I'd like to ask you. If we lose 2022, will you consider seceding? No. <laughs> no, I'm going to fight, Carol. I'm going to fight. This is my country. I love this country. I'm, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us. And it requires us to stay here and fight for it. There is so much we can do. There are so many ways we can get more mobilized. And by the way, as progressives, we represent the majority of Americans. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.